This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 199 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Jordan and I'm joined today by Brady and David. As the clock ticks over into December, it's officially bowl season and we've got a destination for Georgia State football's final game of 2023. We'll also talk about the state of the roster and talk about a mixed week on the hardwood for Jonas Hayes, guys. But first, it's bowl time. Panthers have drawn Utah State in the 2023 famous Potato Bowl in Boise, Idaho. The game is at Albertson Stadium, Blue Turf, or Smurf Turf, depending on your uh, predilection for nicknames, on Saturday, December 23rd at 3.30 Eastern Time and will be broadcast on ESPN. Like the Panthers, the Aggies are 6-6 six and six on the year and won three of their last four to get to bowl eligibility. Georgia State is 0-4 against the Mountain West Conference all-time, including both of their bowl losses to San Jose State in the 2015 Cure Bowl and Wyoming in the 2019 Arizona Bowl. So this matchup is an opportunity to end that offer and that bad juju against the Mountain West in bowl games. So, gentlemen, uh, how about some initial thoughts on the Potato Bowl? Uh, we'll have a fuller breakdown and preview next week in uh, that podcast, but uh, what are your initial thoughts? I mean, I'll go ahead and say what I think everyone's thinking. It does feel right. In a, in a bad way uh, for a season that started six and one ended six and six to end up in basically the furthest away possible destination for Georgia State to end, that could have been, they could have been in. Um, and so in that respect, I think that the announcement probably went down as a bummer for a lot of people. But the six and six team in Utah State, it's going to be, I think, a winnable game. Obviously, Georgia State's roster is super in flux. And so that will impact a lot of how the game may go. Um, could be the, the team looks nothing like what they did a month ago and, uh, you know, gets even worse and it's just not a competitive game. But this staff, in the, with the exception of the year where Dan Ellington was playing on one leg, they've gotten really good prep work done for bowl games. And so even with all of the obstacles kind of in their way, and there's a lot of them, I kind of give them the benefit of the doubt of getting a good product out there because the only year they did not do that they did not have a functional quarterback. Uh, so I'm kind of expecting a fun game. I'm excited. I'm planning to go uh, because when else are you going to go see the Smurf turf in person? Uh, whenever, when else am I going to get from Georgia to Idaho for any particular reason? It's just not necessarily something I could plan to, you know, get to that state again anytime soon. And the other part of it is like, and I tweeted this, I don't know if it was the day of or the day after, I forget when I tweet things. Um, this is kind of Georgia State's lot until they figure out the attendance and fan base thing, because in a year with 12 Sunbelt teams, uh, they were going to overfill their slots and it was going to turn to some, you know, back backroom dealing and bowl committees being like, well, I want to get wherever they come from. If they're a Sunbelt team, I want to get a good attendance or whatever. And Georgia State's going to move to the bottom of that list for right now because the perception is, and not unfairly, that they just don't have fans that are going to travel. And so I don't really hold it against Panther fans that aren't going to be able to, on short notice, go cross-country like this. Um, and if there aren't a lot of people at this game from Georgia State, it wouldn't shock me, nor would I think this would reflect badly on fans. But until it switches to where they can expect, as a bowl committee, that it's going to be a traveling fan base, it's not going to be the first time or the last time this happens. And uh, it kind of is what it is. You know, it's the same with going to Arizona in 2019. Uh, it's the same with Montgomery was a close game, but I don't think anyone really wanted the Christmas day slot in 2021 and Georgia state ends up there. It kind of is what it is. And, you know, collectively everything's kind of going to have to improve in that aspect. I think for bowl selection day to be a little bit less, full of dread and expecting maybe to get these type of assignments, which you might have to start doing if you haven't already, if you're a Georgia state fan. Yeah. Bowl season is fun. Um, you know, I'm looking just on Delta's website about these, uh, airline tickets from Atlanta to Idaho. And I don't agree with you. I understand why somebody necessarily wouldn't want to do this. Um, and that's not to say anything about the um, perceived 
fandom or you know just fans at georgia state i just think it's an unfortunate draw it's kind of like the 2020 draw when they had to go play in the arizona bowl i believe was it when they played wyoming um you know it's it's nice that georgia state obviously got to a bowl game and you know you hope that they can win it and play a good football game on a you know national scale but at the same time though i understand anybody's hesitance to you know make this cross-country trek likely costing multiple legs and you know a, a very long travel day um to go watch the panthers play it but it, you know you're right it's just kind of the unfortunate byproduct of where the program is right now and that's just kind of if there's going to be a 12 sunbelt teams that are going to go to bowl games that's just kind of where the draw might end up being for georgia state i will say this though as a viewing experience at home, you're still going to get some of this. I'm certainly looking forward to being all up in potato land. And they definitely lean into the potato stuff just based on everything I've read so far and from past famous Idaho potato bowls that I have watched on TV. I'm glad that Georgia State's in a, a bowl that memes something. You know, the Cheez-It Bowl last year went all in on it. And, you know, the... Uh, this year's the, the Pop Tart Bowl, where you know, Dave Dorn is talking about, you know, I can't disclose whether I would chew the Pop Tart or not, like what flavor is it, and trying to pair Pop Tarts with bourbon. Um, and the winning coach and I think players were are going to eat that giant Pop Tart uh, mascot or just giant Pop Tart. It's it's unclear if there will be a human wearing this Pop Tart or not, but that's happening in that game and in the Potato Bowl. The thing has been the last few times, I forget when they started this, the winning coach gets a fries bath at the end. So something to look forward to for Sean Elliott as he's prepping for this win is knowing he's going to be doused in some whatever the cut of the fries are um, on the sideline on the blue turf. Georgia State's been in some fun bowl games, but they haven't been in one of these type of like going out of its way to be fun and be a bit of a meme bowl games. And I think especially as the future landscape of college football looks a little bit dark for the foreseeable future. Any opportunity to just lean into some fun, I'm all for. And this is a bowl game that's basically one of the ones that invented that. Yeah, no, I, now that you say that, I really wish that Georgia State had gotten the Mayo Bowl. I, I don't know the uh, specific conference tie-ins. I, I think that's ACC, ACC and SEC. Yeah, so um, would have been a real happen. stretch. Yeah, but could you imagine Coach Elliott in the Duke's Mayo Bowl? <laughs> Honestly, it would be hilarious if his team somehow found a way to win in that. And uh, like uh, Jordan said, we will later kind of fully go into the game itself. But like my initial thoughts are Utah State's been playing better as of late and Georgia State's been playing a lot worse as of late. So you are getting that kind of clash of form with the month off in between. So probably going to be about preparation and who makes this month count. But Utah State's got a really proficient offense. Uh, they average over 34 points a game, and in all six of their wins this year, they scored 30-plus points. And so they've kind of got a blueprint for how they're going to win football games, and it is score, score, score. So for a Georgia State offense that really lost its form over the last month and change of the season, uh, probably you might have to expect to get back into the the September halcyon days of scoring 30 plus because Utah state very, very well might be doing the same thing and might be turning it into a bit of a shootout. Um, and it, it's a coach we're all familiar with because Blake Anderson was at Arkansas state from 2014 to 2020. Um, and it's actually the rubber match. If you want to call it that between coach Elliott and coach Anderson, because while Blake Anderson's record against Georgia state overall is pretty flowery. Um, by the time Elliott got here and they played four times, they split it. So it's 2-2 heading into the series finale, as it were. And uh, winning coach takes all and, like I said, gets a fries bath. Yeah, the game will certainly be interesting. Um, you know, I think Utah State has done a good job in some of their games playing good defense. And in some of their games, they've done a really good job of scoring points. Um Obviously, the way that the transfer portal works, the way that NIL works, um, as we sit here today on December 6th, 
there's a lot of people who we don't know are going to either play or not play um, in the actual bowl game. So or we um, know will not play. Oh, yeah. And th- I was about to say that, like, there's other people who we know specifically will not play as well. So, you know, I think next week when we kind of dive in a little bit deeper, um, we'll tell us and inform our opinions a little bit harder. But, you know, if you're just looking at what the actual regular season was, I mean, this was a Utah State team that, you know, in some games they scored a lot of points and the offense was really good. And in some games, the defense was really leaky. And, you know, it was not the unit that they needed to actually get more than the six wins that they got. And if that reminds you of any team in particular, it should. Um, But, you know, I think it'll be a fun game. I think these teams are pretty close and, you know, kind of their, I don't want to say methodology, but their, uh, their similar teams is, I guess, what I would say there. And like the last thing is, I loved when they played Wyoming, like just because you're not going to schedule Wyoming. In the, the Wyoming is not going to schedule Georgia State, although I guess they did just they did schedule something with apps. So maybe they're not opposed to going out to the East Coast. But like Utah State was not going to be on the out of conference schedule anytime soon. And so when this bowl game offers you an opportunity to play a team from a different part of the country that you're not going to see probably on your schedule in any season to come. I think that's a real bonus of bowl season. And I like that you can get some of these fun matchups. Um, even if I don't think either Georgia state fans know much about Utah state or vice versa with Utah state and uh, Georgia state um, chance to learn a lot more about a team that you might not know all that much to begin with. And so that along with all the memes and just a lot of football, basically every day during the back half of December, it's what bowl season's about. That is why we play these games. And uh, break the Mountain West streak. Um, you're 0-4 against them all time. All of your bowl losses have been against Mountain West teams. So I guess if Georgia State loses this one, we know what the issue is. It's kind of like, you know, they're going to get Western Kentucky in like every other bowl game. And I guess they skipped that this time. But if they have a Mountain West team, after all I just said about it's nice to play new teams... Uh, we might be in a fade Georgia State against Mountain West opponents principles here if uh, this game also goes the wrong way. Because that's a decade of evidence right there, dating back to the first bowl game they were ever in against San Jose State. If, you know, both schools are bowl eligible next year, it's just going to be a Georgia State trying to play Western Kentucky if this one doesn't go well sort of thing. All right. So, uh, again, we'll be back again next week with some more about the potato bowl. But let's go ahead and take a look at the Sunbelt bowl picture. There are 12 of them, uh, most out of any FBS conference, Sunbelt, Funbelt. Uh, there are no belt versus belt matchups, as we had feared uh, somewhat before. But let's go ahead and run down these real quick. Uh, so Saturday, December 16th, Georgia Southern faces Ohio in Myrtle Beach. Louisiana faces Jacksonville State in the New Orleans Bowl. App State faces Miami, Ohio in the Cure Bowl down in Orlando. On December 19th, ODU faces Western Kentucky in the famous Toastery Bowl in Charlotte, formerly the Bahamas Bowl, uh, but moved up there for the one year while they're doing, I guess, work on the stadium in the Bahamas or something. Uh, December 23rd, along with Georgia State's game, Troy faces Duke in the Birmingham Bowl. Arkansas State faces NIU in the Camellia Bowl. James Madison faces Air Force in the Armed Forces Bowl. South Alabama faces Eastern Michigan in the 68 Ventures Bowl, and Coastal heads to Hawaii to face San Jose State, speaking of, in the nightcap. Lastly, Texas State has an in-state battle with Rice in the First Responder Bowl on Boxing Day, December 26th. So, before we get into Sunbelt Bowl discussion, gentlemen, I have a question for you. Now, I've done all of the math. I've looked it up. Who has the shortest travel distance and who has the longest that's not Coastal? And not Georgia State, so we'll start with we'll start with the shortest. I mean, uh, don't I, look I know it up. the shortest. Okay, I, I, know, I know you the know the shortest, shortest but but we're going to get there. All right. Uh, so I guess you can go ahead and guess if you think you know. I know you. I know. mean, if you're playing in your own stadium, pretty good <laughs> clue to you're not traveling that far. So South Alabama is playing in Mobile. South right. Al's the shortest distance. Right. And yours? Are you saying in just the Sun Belt? I'm just Sun Belt. Yeah, this is Sun Belt Bowl. Sun Belt Bowl games. Okay. But 
I think the funny part about that specifically is technically they are the, they are the road team. Yes, they are, David. Be, that is, yes. I'm so glad you using that the visiting locker room. No, they're, they're probably going to use their own locker room. No, no they're, they're they have the to use the visiting one. one. It was all over the yeah. uh, CSN BBS or whatever. People were talking about it. Honestly, yeah. that's crazy. They're gonna, Those players are going to be in a locker room that they've never been in before. They're about to have that renovation real quick. But so South Alabama's travel distance, I'm counting as 160 feet because that's the distance sideline to sideline. <laughs> so so the Jaguars will travel a whole 160 feet for their bowl game. Uh, obviously, Coastal is going to be the longest going to Hawaii, and we know Georgia State's is really far. Who is the next furthest distance? Don't look it up. I'll let, I'll let David go first because I went on the other one. I think I want to say Marshall going to Frisco because that's got to be pretty far. Okay. I'm going to go the other team going to Texas. Um, I think Harrisonburg is further inland and a little bit further. And so JMU going to the Armed Forces Bowl in Dallas would be my guess. Okay. So just so we're clear, uh, I measure distance from stadium to stadium. So their home stadium to the stadium the bowl is being played in. James Madison, Armed Forces Bowl, Amon G. Carter Stadium at Texas Christian University, 1,233 miles. Travel time by car of 18 hours and 34 minutes. Or I guess we could say equipment truck because you know those guys aren't going to fly. They're going to be driving everywhere except, you know, Hawaii because you kind of can't do that. We um, love equipment truck guys. They yes, keep we the do. sport going. Yes, we do. Always a good follow on Twitter. Thankless, thankless work. It, it absolutely sucks driving giant vehicles across the country. It's it's not fun, but those guys are absolute. But anyway, troopers. you went with me first, so yes. Tell tell us, David was right. So, actually, no, David was incorrect because Marshall, uh, playing in Toyota Stadium, one thousand and two miles. Travel time from Huntington of 15 hours and 36 minutes. So I thought I had that one. I really did. I, don't, I, I got it. The two for two. Of the sun belt, yep. but Brady's two for two. Let's go. Keep my reputation up. I don't oh, specifically the remember the map of the sun belt, but I, I really felt like Marshall would be further than Frisco than uh, yes. James Madison. Now, th- I did have a leg up on this. distance. This is not bird's eye distance. I did have a, a leg up on this in the sense that at Sunbelt Media Days, I was talking with a couple other people that were there trying to decide who would come further from their respective places to cover it, whether it was Marshall people or JMU people. And at that point, the answer was, oh, yeah, it's JMU surprisingly longer than Huntington. And so I had a hunch. All right. So I'm, I'm glad that you uh, you picked up on those. Uh, the, the South Alabama thing, though, that, that's what made me want to do this, because I just thought it was so hilarious that you can play a bowl game in your own stadium and be the away team. But I'll, I'll run through the rest of these real quick, because a lot of them are actually pretty drivable outside of Georgia State, obviously, Coastal Carolina and then uh, James Madison Marshall. The rest of these are honestly very, very travelable games. The Sun Belt did pretty well in terms of getting bowl selection. Obviously, you know, Georgia State fans probably aren't going to be happy about maybe going to Boise two days before Christmas, but uh, Louisiana playing the New Orleans Bowl in the Superdome, 136 miles, two hours, seven minutes. No surprise there. Uh, Troy in the Birmingham Bowl, protective stadium on the campus of UAB, 144 miles, two hours, 22 minutes. Texas State in the first responder bowl at Gerald J. Ford Stadium at SMU, 229 miles, three hours, 34 minutes. Georgia Southern in Myrtle Beach at Brooks Stadium on the campus of Coastal Carolina, 262 miles, four hours, uh, 12 minutes. Old Dominion famous Toastery Bowl, Jerry Richardson Stadium on the campus of UNC Charlotte, 319 miles, five hours, six minutes, Arkansas State in the Camellia Bowl, uh, which is the stadium called the Crampton Bowl. I don't know why they don't just call it whatever. Uh, 395 miles, six hours, five minutes, App State in the Cure Bowl. This year at FBC Mortgage Stadium, also known as the Bounce House, on the campus of UCF, 618 miles and nine hours, 26 minutes. And we already talked about the rest. So, Coastal Carolina. Don't look it up. How long is it going to take them, including transit time from the stadium to the airport and from the airport in Honolulu to the stadium they're playing in? How long is it going to take them to uh, to get there? So we have gotten rid of we're not pretending they're driving anymore. I mean, if you want to drive across the Pacific Ocean, be my guest. Let me know how that goes. I'm assuming the equipment guys don't have to like I'm assuming they're just going to fly everything. Right. I mean, (laughs) you get to put it on the slow boat, take it around the uh, 
<laughs> take it around the Panama just, Canal. So you want a a time for this? Yes, I want a time, and then uh, we'll do we'll do two things. We'll do time, and we'll do total aggregate distance. Driving to the airport in Myrtle Beach, Myrtle Beach to Honolulu. However, you think they're going to get there because that is going to have to connect somewhere. And then, well, I'll, okay. In fairness, I I will say I did I charted this Delta connecting through Atlanta, so Myrtle Beach to Atlanta to Honolulu. And then they're playing that bowl game on the campus of the University of Hawaii at, I believe it's Clarence T.C. Ching Athletic Complex a track stadium. They put a bunch of bleachers on because the Aloha Stadium has been condemned, which is actually closer to the airport than uh, University of Hawaii was. Uh, see, I, I did my calculations on Aloha. So, uh, all right. Well, then uh, if, if David knows the other one, then he might beat you. All right. But we'll go ahead. I'll let you guys decide who goes first. Give me mileage first and then we'll do we'll do time after that. Well, I can't do miles because I've flown from Atlanta to Honolulu before. Um, it has been, what, eight years at this point. So I don't remember. Well, I don't think it's mileage. <laughs> Well, yeah, I'm saying I don't remember the mileage of that trip, um, but I remember the hours. So it was about nine hours from Atlanta to Honolulu on that day. Um, so, you know, assuming good weather and no need to go around, I feel like if you're transferring and starting in Myrtle Beach, Conway-ish, you know, that probably adds about another hour and a half. So ten and a half hours, I will say from stadium to stadium okay so that's going to be you're going to lock in 10 and a half for the total transit time yeah i feel good about that 10 and a half yeah okay uh, i will add the layover time to your guess when we when we reveal because i didn't tell you what it was and that's not fair for me to uh count that against you but brady pretty <laughs> what's your guess? layover time um i was hoping you were going to give a guess on mileage so i wouldn't like completely <laughs> go off and just like way overdo it um i mean i feel like i should just do the prices right thing and just get something a little bit higher so i'm gonna say just flat 11 hours okay so uh let me go ahead and break this down for you uh this is uh, actually i could just give you flight numbers because I've got oh actually I don't have that pulled up anymore but I'll just I'll just go ahead and tell you uh, Delta from Myrtle Beach to Atlanta let me pull up my uh, thing here is a one hour and twenty seven minute flight a two hour and twenty eight minute layover and then Atlanta to Honolulu is ten hours and twenty five minutes which Delta is for some reason running this flight with an Airbus A three thirty which is a uh, is that a single aisle or a dual aisle? I can't remember. I think it's a. I think it's. it's a, a, I think it's a wide it's body. A, no, I a think three, it's a single. Thir- the three twenty is a single aisle. All right, plane nerd time. Let's go. A three thirty. I th- I believe. I believe is a double aisle. Right. It is also the saying yes. that they might be taking a different plane than this. Right. Obviously, so, yes. The, they're, the they're concern not may not be had. <laughs> but the, you know, at Atlanta Delta, you know, I had I had to do that. But um. Yeah, when when I took that flight, it was on a 767-400ER. Uh, that was a great flight. Nice big airplane. 330 is a little bit smaller, but I digress. So the total travel time, including the layover uh, from Myrtle Beach to Honolulu, including transit time from stadium to the airport to the other airport to the stadium, is 15 hours even so if we subtract the two hour 20 minute layover that makes the actual travel time to be 12 hours in 32 minutes so brady's closer um i mean the person who goes first is always at that disadvantage <laughs> right that that's just how the game works perfectly happy to be sitting back it's the college football overtime rules <laughs> <laughs> i All did right. find it funny um that you got the news like coastal has had a fair amount of people decide they're going to transfer but then as soon as they got word it was the hawaii bowl you got news like mccall ex- killing expected to play in hawaii bowls <laughs> like i totally respect that i get that like absolutely yeah. get yourself that covered trip to go to hawaii yeah no if you're somebody who cares about getting to all 50 states it, you know if somebody is going to comp you a trip to hawaii you should take it yeah, absolutely 
So Brady's three and zero. So I guess there's there's no like tiebreaker possibility. But uh, any guesses on total mileage? Now this is road mileage from the stadium to the airport, uh, Myrtle Beach to Atlanta, Atlanta to Honolulu, and then the Honolulu airport to the stadium. Aggregate mileage. Any 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 ballpark guesses? My only problem is the Pacific. Like that's such a bit like. Hawaii to LA is very far. Like that's a four hour flight by itself, maybe even six, depending on a couple of things. But um, that alone is what's throwing me off because like, I want to say something in the like 7,000 mile range. This is, this is one way. This is not round trip. Just before you final lock in your guesses. Like, yeah, I mean, still, like, I don't think that changes my answer. Like, I feel like it's still going to be somewhere around 7,000, right? <laughs> I'm just going to do the exact same thing. I was going to say 9,000. I'm just going to take the over. All right. So David's going to say 7,000. Brady's going to say 9,000. What if I told you it's only 4,827.2 miles? Or that, no, like, I barely Atlanta to LA. You. Atlanta to I LA didn't... is 1,900 miles by car. I had absolutely no ref. Like I was, I could not in the frame of mind think of like the miles of distances. Like, well, now I was on. Oh, I was way over my skis, but I did get the actual the full round trip. So if we're yeah. giving half points, even though you I mean not like you said, I'm them. not asking for round trip. <laughs> um, I did end up getting it about that way. So just saying. Yeah. So you know, grand scheme of things. A cool 5,000 miles for a bowl game. Yeah. I'll take it. Immediately negated any cool factor (laughs) from getting the first one right by having no idea how how many miles it is across the continental U.S. And that's the curveball. That's what what you get when somebody plays a bowl game on the other side of the planet. Let's go. So hopefully that was a little bit of a fun detour before we talk about the uh, the actual bowl games. Now that we've discussed the ins and outs of traveling to them. Uh, Gentlemen, do you have any thoughts on the games themselves? I think if you're Sunbelt fans, you're looking at the number 12 is like, all right, we're going to really get some matchups that it's going to be fun. You got Troy Duke, but that is the only Sunbelt versus Power 5 bowl game which i think is going to rate as a little bit of a disappointment um the other side of it though is i think there's a fair amount of winnable games like i don't think marshall utsa is a particularly great matchup and you know we've talked about we'll continue to talk about that georgia state is just a big old question mark heading into this bowl game and um ohio i don't think is a super matchup for georgia southern fans not that a lot of people listening to this are going to mind that but like if you keep going down the list even Duke, like with a new coach, Troy being who they are, playing really damn well right now. I don't know that you look at a ton of these as like certain losses. And so I like I, I talked about it last week that like the bar gets raised when you're talking about, oh, you've got 12 bowl teams like you could lose a bunch of games and it, it puts a little red mark on your book. Georgia State, uh, Georgia Southern, Marshall aside, uh, Troy, because they're playing a power power five like everyone else is in a pretty good shape i think to win their bowl game and that would certainly go a long way jack state louisiana maybe the other one that's going to be tough because jack state's pretty good but louisiana fans always go crazy when that game is when they're in the new orleans bowl and they turn out and so i think they will have a distinct home field advantage for that one and that could matter in that game yeah, I think the matchups are certainly interesting, um, but I think they also skew a bit in the Sun Belt's favor. Um, you know, I think App State might not be they've, – they've definitely rounded into form by the end of the season, but, the, I mean, this isn't like a couple of years ago, App State, and they're facing an 11-2 and Miami, Ohio team that I think is some level of pretty good. But at the same time, though, I still think App State can win just kind of based on where Miami, Ohio is. Um, that is the Cure Bowl. Um, funny enough. But other than that, I think Brady really hit the head on where the kind of stress points, if you will, the tough matchups for the Sun Belt um, kind of lie. I mean, it's 
we haven't talked about the sheer number of bowl games this week because we mentioned it a few pods back. But I think the last time I checked all of the lines for them, the Sun Belt was favored in eight of the 12 bowl games that they're in, which I mean, if there were Sun Belt team, if there were eight Sun Belt teams that were bowling, that would be absurd. The fact that there's 12 is absurd, but being favored you know, in eight of the 12, even if they're favored by half a point, that is still also an incredibly crazy number to think about. And I feel like let's leave it. Let's pick them next week because there's 12 of them. Could be a little bit of fun. Jordan, get in on it, too. Um, but we'll let ourselves do some more research and also some content for the next pod. And uh, save that as next week is the first real game week because games don't happen until the 16th. And now that we just had, I think, a, a, a happy segment, a, a fun segment with a Jordan throwing in a surprise game on us, uh, probably time to turn before we switch sports. Uh, we've gotten some more transfer news, and we're still in the time of the year where it is the negative kind of transfer news. Um, since last recording, we've got some more guys that have announced they are entering the transfer portal. Um, Jalen Tate, safety, has announced he's going to enter the portal. Starting cornerback, uh, team captain this year, Bryce Brown, has announced he's going to the portal. Another running back, uh, Jaquan Dixon, has announced he's going to the portal. Uh, backup right tackle this year, Cameron Dye, going to the portal. That's now both of your right tackles depth chart, um, along with Travis Glover running out of eligibility. So certainly going to need some tackles in the offseason. Uh, uh, JT Jackson, reserve cornerback, is going in the portal. And then the big one, which I think we kind of felt was coming, uh, Robert Lewis, wide receiver, leading receiver, um, third belt, third team all-sum belt, uh, seventh in the uh, league in receiving yards this year, going to the portal and has already been put out there by a couple of different media guys that uh, he will be visiting Auburn and Cincinnati. So, you know, if you were thinking like, oh, is he going to leave and not go somewhere big? Like he's getting those offers. I think he's going to land somewhere pretty good. And then the last kind of news on that front is also Marcus Carroll put out, uh, who had announced he's transferring last week in time for us recording last week's pod. He's going to Mizzou for a visit this weekend. And like that is a home run. If you watch Mizzou this year, obviously they won 10 games. Gangbusters year for Eli Drinkwitz there when he was maybe one of the more high up on the hot seat list coaches heading into this year. Uh, Cody Schrader had, I think, about the same number of carries and yards that Marcus had. So if that is where he is able to land, he could have a very similar season to this year just for an SEC team. And so, again, absolutely a bummer for Georgia State fans to lose these talented guys. But for the second straight offseason, you're seeing – the guys at the top that did it, did it for a reason, and you're going to see them have a lot of success, a la Jamari Thrash this past year, and Jamil Muhammad, uh, to maybe a lesser extent, but still he put up some numbers for the USC defense, uh, why they made the jump as well, and sort of is what it is. I mean, this is the G5 lot for the time being, and um, going to be on the coaches to, to replace some really, really talented players. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the transfer portal and NIL and all that is just really kind of exposing which G5 schools can recruit at an incredibly high level um, and which schools do that just for the on three or the 24-7 sports rankings, um, which isn't to say that those rankings are bad, um, but, you know, I think continuity is really going to be the name of the game for sustained success now just because, you know, there is a chance that any sort of good player that you have at the G5 level is going to parlay that good season into an extra year or into another year just, you know, at a power five. And, I, you know, I don't say that to, you know, be a hater of that. You know, I, I wish everybody who comes through Georgia State and leaves Georgia State well. Um, I just think that is the reality of the situation when it comes to how the portal is right now, when it comes to how NIL is right now. And, you know, it's just on the coaches to find players to, you know, one, develop that loyalty, develop that, you know, continuity. But it's also to find that it's on coaches to find just players in general and 
you know, be able to replace the players that left the prior year. There's, I mean, there's so many college football teams. There's so many talented college players. Some of them come from high school. Some of them come from FCS. Some of them come from other teams. Some of them come from power five teams that don't have opportunities. So, you know, it's, it's not to say that the resources are lacking. Um, it's just kind of just the way that it is. Yeah, and for panthertalk.com, plug, uh, I put out just kind of a whole primer for VIPs on just the needs for this team. A little over 2,100 words, so definitely empty the notebook as the, no- the notebook, as it were. Um, as a kind of a preview of that, um, if you haven't checked it out, I would just say that like the five positions and then a little bonus one that I've got kind of looking at that this team is going to have to look for in the portal, whether it's a guy transferring from a portal or whether it's a Juco guy, I don't think you necessarily need to discriminate. Just someone who will early enroll and be there for spring practice uh, in 2024. They're going to need a quarterback. They're going to need a running back or two or three. They're going to need some offensive linemen. Talked about it. You're losing your tackle depth. You're losing guys on the interior as well. Uh, you're going to, I think, need an outside linebacker. Shamar McCollum is going to be out of eligibility. Kevin Swint is going to need a, a new dance partner. And more to just general evolution of the defense, I kind of feel like they need some kind of a difference maker type at outside linebacker. You know, at that spot, there's really only one quote-unquote outside linebacker spot in this defense um, because the star position and... Sometimes they just had inside linebackers stay rotated in and ran with three backers there instead of having a safety or, you know, the star guy on a given play. The other side where Swint and McCollum played the majority of the snaps, uh, that guy's probably rushing the quarterback a good bit. And relative to, you know, good defenses across the board and relative to the best defenses Stags had at Coastal, not just in terms of sacks, but just in terms of quarterback hurries, Florida State was below the mark this year. And so I think that's a place where maybe it makes sense for this to be where you maybe make a splash on a power uh, power five guy like you did with Kevin Swint. I just kind of feel like you need to look to grab someone who can maybe be that type of impact. And that's where you take your home, home run swing because I just think that the thing that eluded the defense more than anything was until the ODU game, getting the quarterback out off of his rhythm. And that's why you had Joey Aguilar, Jordan McLeod, Jaden Daniels, though, you know, he did that to everyone, kind of do what they wanted to down the field in the passing game. And so I think that it's not anything that's happened because of the transfers that have happened. That's just a, I think, a general need to improve this team heading into 2024. Um, And I don't think that you need to go out and get a bunch of wide receivers, but I do think you probably need to target just a true wide receiver one because you are losing Lewis kind of like you did with Thrash. And I don't know if anyone on the roster currently projects to be that type where you could kind of do that with Lewis this past offseason. Tyreek Williams, certainly a really, really good player. And you've got some other guys, you've got some young guys that haven't really gotten a chance to play yet. But I think you kind of need to go see if you can get a real, real impact guy there, guy with some size on the outside, because uh, Lewis was a really good player for you, and he could do a lot of different things. And I think you're you're risking losing some of the gains that you made in the passing game uh, if you're not able to find another difference maker like him at wide receiver. Yeah, and I mean... I don't know. I feel like I take the approach that this is the fun of this sort of time period. Um, You know, obviously, it's easy to say that here on December 6th instead of, you know, next August or whatever, when we're looking at previews. Hope that we're about out of these announcements and we move to the other ones. Like, I think you are right, but we will find out, I guess, over the next week if it is the fun time or if it is still the not fun time. Right, exactly. You know, and I think... The nice thing about the transfer portal, if it works, is that you just get a lot of new talent. And, you know, we talk about recruits, you know, not too much on this podcast specifically, but, we, you know, we mention them when the signing period is over. Um, you know, there's some other podcasts that kind of delve deeper into that sort of thing. Um, but a lot of the way that we people talk about recruits is there's very few impact freshmen that come up. 
you know, when you've got a guy who's actually played football and actually has tape regardless of level, you know, it's nice to see them actually kind of incorporate into, you know, the system of the school that you're either reporting on or, you know, talking about. So, you know, hopefully the next time we're having a conversation about transfers in football, it's of the good variety. All right, now let's go ahead and shift gears and talk about basketball. Uh, we're not going to do a Sunbelt Roundup uh, quite yet for basketball, but uh, we did have a little bit of early college basketball coaching carousel news relevant to the Sunbelt as Coastal Carolina head coach Cliff Ellis announced his plans to retire effective immediately on Wednesday afternoon. His associate head coach, Benny Moss, will take over on an interim basis. Ellis at 78 had been the oldest coach in D1 basketball. That distinction now falls to Dan D'Antoni at 76 the head coach at Marshall. So, gentlemen, uh, any thoughts? Somberly, solemnly, it was time. Uh, It was probably time a couple of years ago, but it was definitely time. I think it was like two years ago. Honestly, I want to say it was three, where Brady kind of clued me in on... Uh, coach Ellis and then we kind of looked at like how Coastal had been doing and I was like oh it's like probably time and again that was two years ago and it wasn't time until like this week so yeah it it had been time Um, great career truthfully like that's you know anytime you can spend that much time one in college basketball period um, and then two at the same school for that long, uh, you clearly are doing something right. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it certainly had been time. Like Devonte Jones was there really good player. He ended up at Michigan, like even into his later years, he was getting dudes there. You know, Essa Mustafa really good, big that he kind of, I, I can't, I don't know if he was a big recruit. Um, I don't remember his name really cropping up in that kind of, in that kind of conversation. And so he had still managed to get some good guys there. It just, I mean, especially this last couple of years, the defense has just like fallen off a cliff and it just, well, cliff, that was not intentional, but um, I, I don't know where to go from here after that. But uh, I, the l- last year example, like you don't want to dog on Georgia state too bad, but like if you gave up a hundred points and all the three point shots that you did, the Coastal did to that Georgia State team in that game that very quickly looked like a mirage compared to the rest of the season. That should have been a big signal that maybe the the guy who's in charge needs to move on. But it was one of those awkward situations where he had earned the right to call it when it was his time. But I'm sure there were people behind the scenes being like, all right, Cliff, all right, uh, don't go into this season. And it does give you this awkward, basically... I don't want to say wasted season because it's disrespectful to the coaches that are still there that are going to be doing their damnedest to win some games. But doing it now, you know, it just feels like such a worse situation than going out on a high uh, in the offseason, getting to do a whole search uh, and not kind of throwing this on everyone's lap in the middle of the year. I mean, I, I hope there wasn't any kind of health reason that forced this. I did not watch his press conference earlier to see. Um, obviously, if that was the case, you could understand the timing. but. That was about the only strange thing about it for me was that it just kind of dropped after a convincing Coastal win. They won by like 60 against a non-D1 team. And it was like started word started creeping out that there would be a Sunbelt uh, coaching move. And I think everyone kind of knew what that would mean. And then it started to leak out that like, yeah, it's Cliff Ellis announcing he's retiring and going to be interesting um, because it, it's felt like a program that's been trending way down in the Sunbelt just based on results. Um, and I don't know that it's a like terrible job. So it will be interesting to see who they target and who they bring in because you know, it might be another team that finds a way to uh, challenge for the, you know, for the crown in the Sunbelt basketball realm. Yeah, I think um, it's, it's interesting only because of the timing, you know, we're not in conference play quite yet, but this is obviously the worst time to be looking for a coach and it really does hinder their ability to, you know, I guess overcome the situation, you know, old takes exposed me, if you will, and they end up winning the Sun Belt if they, you know, hire a good interim and figure things out. But, you know, it's obviously you don't want to be looking for a new coach around this time you know that's not 
that's not necessarily what most people had drawn up the way that the 2023 2024 season was going to go for them and i mean they have what three games left until conference play and you know we we know how sunbelt basketball is going to be this year it's not going to be easy for them at all um so i don't know yeah i mean you say not going to be easy what we saw this week was auburn took a trip up to boone to play app state in basketball and app state won that game uh stormed the court afterwards them and james madison are sitting in the top uh, 50 or so in the initial net rankings. After that, there's kind of a dip. Georgia State was third at 143 in the net, which I think was surprising for a lot of people. Uh, probably feature the fact that they did not have any blowouts in any of the losses uh, that they've ha- had so far, and they've played some teams. You know, they've scored a lot of points. Um, one on the road twice, I think that mattered. But like. I was holding off on the is it a down year for the Sunbelt thing. I think I'm ready to say it might be a little bit of one uh, because you look at those net rankings and there's some ugly, ugly scenes. A lot of teams pulling up in the low 200s, uh, the 300s. Um, But it's funny because because of how well James Madison and App State are doing, it might be the best year the conference has in a while in basketball because... I mean, James Madison is still in the conversation where if they keep just winning games, they could be an at-large. <laughs> and so in a year where maybe the Sun Belt is as bad as it's been in a couple of years, it could be the first time since Georgia State's joined the conference that it's been a two-bid league. It's just, it's funny how you can't map this stuff out. Yeah, it's, it's weird because I feel like the way that people perceive the Sun Belt um, in football and basketball is different than how I have perceived it. I don't think last year, I, last year it ended up being better than I expected, but I was really nervous about the first year with the new entrance. Um, I understand how, you know, your thoughts on James Madison and the top of the Sun Belt, And I don't think the top of the Sun Belt has changed a ton. Um, uh, James Madison is better currently than right. the last couple saying, of years. Like, I should the top say. of the Sun Belt was good last year, and it is also good this year. You've the middle class is spottier. Yeah, the middle class is pretty shaky, and the bottom of the Sun Belt is like bad, bad. really, really bad. Um, like you know, obviously we dog on Georgia Southern as this is a Georgia State podcast, but like. It's time to be concerned about Statesboro as, you know, we look to elevate the conference in terms of the basketball profile. Um, really time to be concerned there because it's uh, it's not been going great is what and I would they say. are about to play Tennessee in Knoxville. Yeah, and it's uh, it's I mean, it's not getting any easier for them at all. I'm, I'm not saying that winless is a possibility yet. There's four months of basketball still to be played. Um, but check back in with me in a month and a half, and then we can talk about where they are at that point. Well, I think it was a, a good timing for that uh, to end because you'll feel a little bit better about Georgia State after a one-in-one one week where you, I don't know that you're going to say it feels like much of a win because the win was against a non-D1 team and uh, – you know, Jordan will mention the score. We'll get into the game, but I don't think it was the most encouraging game up at uh, up I-75. Said the right highway this time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it was a one-on-one week, like you said. Uh, the loss at Kennesaw State noted university on I-75. Thank you, Brady, for that correction. Uh, it was an 88-77 victory for the other team, uh, the Owls. Uh Panthers fell to uh, three and four with that game, but got back to 500 hosting middle Georgia state on Monday evening in the convocation center, defeating the Knights 89 to 57. So uh, that was a nice thing to see Panthers sit at four and four heading into Saturday's game at Mercer uh, tip off for that game. will be at 2 PM from Hawkins arena, but uh, gentlemen, any thoughts on this past week and what's coming up this weekend? Just the vibes never clicked in the game on Saturday. Um, Kennesaw had the edge and just energy intensity. They had a good crowd that was into it. And just they were the aggressors. They set the tone. And it felt like offensively, Georgia State was just settling for the first shot where they got any kind of space. And 
Kennesaw was going downhill, going downhill, getting to their bigs down low and taking advantage of the size advantage that they have. And like before you blinked, it was a 20 point Kennesaw lead. It's like, oh, this is in danger territory. And they found something in the second half of the first half, you know, the final 10 minutes, the first half. Julian Mackey, I think, is is a guy that you're looking at now is someone who can really impact the game offensively just to off the bench. I like we were talking about last week with Jeff Thomas, like almost the exact type of game where he's not going to start, but he can come in and hit some fruit, um, some threes. And the thing he was doing on Saturday was immediately running on a rebound, a rebound into one hit him on a couple of cross court passes and he got really easy layups, just brought a different energy that had been lacking for most of that game. They saved it a bit because it was looking like it was going to be ugly and it was only an 11 point halftime lead for Kennesaw and 11 was also the final score. Uh, but certainly. I think you can just call it like it is. I think Georgia State, this team has still got a chance to be really good or, you know, at least some level of good. And I think that you don't need to start looking at like, oh, the peak's gone. They're never going to have a great team again. But Kennesaw has got the edge right now. They've got some players left uh, from that tourney team last year. Terrell Burden, chief among them, their point guard, really good player. Simeon Cottle had a big game for Kennesaw. I think he scored 27. Georgia State's not the big, big baddies in the state anymore in men's basketball. I think they can still be good team. I think they can get back to that point, but it isn't just their state anymore. Like it really felt like for a lot of the last decade. And I think Saturday's result. Probably is the the worst for fans to sit with because of that, that it feels like a changing of the guard or at least a temporary one. It certainly did feel like that. And the the challenge for Georgia State is to kind of get back to that mantle. Um, you know, I think Kennesaw just came to play and they played a better game of basketball. Um you know, I've been watching Georgia State's three-point percentage this year. I'm not ready to really make any drastic claims. Um, you know, but when Lucas Taylor and Tanari Lane are a combined six for 26, or six, excuse me, six for 21, it's not great. Um, that's a, a 28.6 three-point percentage. Um And obviously those guys are shooters. You know, they still made the six. Like, that's still, you know... Both of them tied for the team lead. Um, and it's also, you know, something that you took double digits. other games. If you took double digit threes, you better be tied for the team lead in threes. Seriously. Um, and it's, you know, it's I don't I'm not even going to sit here and tell you that they're streaky shooters or anything like that. Games happen. But I also have noticed sometimes that a lot of Georgia State threes have been of the forced variety. Um, and, you know, going back to the, something I said a couple weeks ago, I don't really care if they're taking good threes and they're missing them because sometimes that happens. It's basketball. You know, yes, you still have to execute, but, you know, sometimes you could have a wide open three that is a good decision to take and you miss it. That happens um, where Georgia State has kind of gotten in trouble a little bit so far this year um, is when they're taking bad threes and they're taking a lot of bad threes. It's not as bad as last year where I feel like the offense will stagnate, you know, to a ridiculous amount. Um, but it is certainly something that I have noticed uh, through, I believe, what, eight games that they've played now? They're four and four. Um, so that's definitely something to watch as they kind of finish out here with their last couple of non-conference games and then get into Sunbelt play because, I mean, this is a good three-point shooting conference and three-point shooting was not the only issue with the 22-23 Panthers, but it was certainly a big issue. Um, and I think that will determine how high of a ceiling that this team can have. It is easy to say that the team is better. I think you and I would both agree that this team is certainly better than the 10 win team last year. Um, but I think the jury is still kind of out on how much better. Um, I don't say that to say that, Oh, this is an 11 win team. No, I just, you know, I'm curious to see what level of better they actually are as we kind of get into the meat and potatoes of the season. Yeah. The thing for me, with the Kennesaw game is I mentioned the size, the strategies, certainly you could tell from Kennesaw to just work it down low to have their guards drive and get some layups. And you can't be undersized and be 
beat off the dribble like Georgia State was in this game. And some of it was that Kennesaw's got some good guards, but they certainly had a strategy. They knew what they wanted to do to try and maximize their point total against this Georgia State team. And you saw Jonas go to his zone late in the first half that really did some good work. Um, the second half, after a halftime break and chance to chat about it, Kennesaw had some better results against the zone. But I almost don't really... They're not going to be a 40 minutes of zone team. Like Ron Hunter is not walking back through that door. They're going to have to find ways to have success in their man-to-man defense because it's what they're going to run most of the time. And so that's going to be on the Jonas and the coaches. They know that there's going to be teams with size that are going to look at this tape of what Kennesaw put on display on Saturday. And that's going to be a way they're going to get attacked. Um, it was not a, a middle Georgia State team on Monday that was you know suited or talented enough to do that, but there are those teams on the schedule certainly. You know, I push back on that though, like very very quickly, only because that was an incredibly close halftime score against Middle Georgia State, simply because. Middle Georgia State was out rebounding Georgia State, I think, by like three. Like the, the yeah. big men play was really good. That, that's a problem, though. It is a problem, you know. And yes, they ended up fixing it in the second half. You know, they outscored them fifty-four to twenty-five, and like yes, they certainly looked a lot better. Um, and you know, I think I think I had a note in the first half they were like three of eighteen um, from three-point range, and then they ended up fixing it to be a respectable number in the second half, where they you know there was a period where they couldn't miss and they kept shooting threes but no like that absolutely is a problem because say what you want about whatever this team is middle georgia state should not be out rebounding georgia state through 20 minutes of basketball it it should not happen at any point in time i don't care who is on the court for georgia state it's just not something that should happen yeah and kind of on the same note the vibes were not that different even though they led at halftime against middle georgia state Obviously, David just mentioned they were getting out rebounded. It it just it something wasn't didn't feel right. Like Jonas said after the game, there were some good looks he liked in the first half that just didn't fall. And there's some truth to that, but I it just still felt like they were a little bit searching for it from three. And like you said, I think the other thing at the other end of the court that the book is getting out on is like if you give Georgia State space on the perimeter, these guys are gonna be quick triggers, and that might not be the worst thing in the world if they're just pulling up and heat checking. And that's kind of what you saw with Kennesaw. And I I think there is a risk with this offense, and it was kind of the case last year, of when they're getting met, you know, when they're not able to run their sets, that they they get into a funk of guys will get a little bit selfish with it. And Jonas didn't want to go there. He likes, he does not want to dim down his guy's aggressiveness. And I certainly understand that viewpoint. Um, But there have been times where it's felt a little bit the ball sticking and guys are taking ill-advised shots. And then in the second half against middle Georgia state level of opponent is not indicative of the rest of the schedule, but you still saw Dewan Odom basically running the offense, getting guys good three pointers. And those were falling, you know, Jaden Turner was four of five from three in that game. He got in a, ry- a rhythm in the second half of that one, you know, Lucas Taylor saw one go in and I think he had another a heat check later in the half. But it, he had gotten some confidence going. It feels like they're taking the shots before the confidence is there sometimes with threes. And the shooting three of 18 or whatever it was from three is the only way to keep a team that you were just better than in the game. Because I think if they had just gone to the rim a lot more in that first half, because they could just win on the dribble, win on the dribble against those guys, the score would have been a lot prettier sooner in the game. I think you can at least hang your hat on the fact that it got better and you can point to the fact that, you know, whether Dewan is running point and running the set and calling it out or whether he's off ball. And I think they've done a good job of finding him sets to be off ball and get some plays off. He is still directing traffic as if he has got the ball in his hand, like middle Georgia state went to a zone a few times and he was the guy pointing to other guys saying, this is where you got to go on the floor. This is where you need to run this action he is still the motor of this offense and he had nine assists. Uh, He was not happy, although having fun about it, getting pulled late in the game when it was well out of doubt with 11 points and nine assists. Cause I think he wanted that double double. And I think he knew he was one, one away from that double double. 
But especially in the second half, you saw what this offense can be. And I think Jonas talked about after the game on Saturday where he's like, well, I asked him what I think what he thought the strength of his team on the court can be that they can take advantage of. And he said, when we share the basketball, we're really, really good. And I think they've got to remember that because they were not sharing the basketball particularly well on Saturday or in the first half against Middle Georgia State on Monday. And the offensive results are not great. They did a lot better job of that in the second half against Middle Georgia State and running their offense and not getting sucked into kind of a trap with uh, the first time they had a little bit of space to take a shot. And they played better because of it. And so I think that's kind of what they've got to lean into because, yes, they are undersized and you're going to have to have a better game plan for when teams come in knowing that and trying to do stuff on offense. But we got to see what this team is really good at. Like, we got to see this team's real style. It still feels like they're finding that a little bit. And I think being able to win games different ways this year has been a welcome change to last year, where if it was a high scoring shootout thing where the other team was going to be making their shots, Georgia State probably wasn't going to be in that game. This year, they were in it with Belmont, even though they lost that game. They played some low scoring games. You know, they played it close with Charlotte. They wanted tight games, you know with uh, Little Rock, Little High scoring, but another tight game all the same. We got to see what this team does best. We got to see Jonas and his staff like work to that a little bit more. And so seeing how they close out non-con is going to be interesting because you've got a couple more games, you know, Mercer, winnable game, still on the road, a challenge. Got another tune-up with a Tacoa Falls. And in between that, you've got BYU, who are number one in the net right now. And a top 10 in Kempom, very, very good team. So kind of a, a mix there of very up in the air, coin flippy game at Mercer, not so coin flippy against BYU, and then a game you should be able to kind of work some stuff out against Tacoa Falls on uh, December 19th. Three more games to kind of continue to find it. And I still feel better about this team than I think we were kind of getting a little bit of a dread at this point. I think at this point last year, they lost that game by 20 at Northeastern. Um, and that was the, the real first like, oh, OK, this is not going to turn around quite yet. Even though they lost. Yeah, I was at uh, Mercer, funnily enough, two years ago. Uh, Georgia State lost a game. They didn't play great. And I forget what the final score was, but it was not like down to the final shot or anything. Mercer had pulled away a little bit by the end. And it was not a team playing particularly great. That team went to the tourney. So, like, you can find it. And you really want to just be playing your best ball in January, February, March, which more than anything else is what Ron Hunter's teams did here. And that's why they had so much success. This team can still get there. Um, feeling better, but obviously getting a win on Saturday would go a long way to resetting a little bit of the vibes because I think the loss on Saturday to Kennesaw was discouraging for some folks. Yeah, and I, you know, I agree. I, I'm not sure. Like I said earlier, I don't know where I think this team is. You know, if somebody asked me, like David, is this a 500 team? I think there's too much talent for it to be a 500 team. Um, but I also think that if they repeat performances like against Kennesaw, obviously it's going to be a lot harder for them to be significantly above 500. Um, but yeah, like th there's so much basketball left, and there's so much time for them to really feel good playing with each other. You know, I mean, this is truthfully the other side of the transfer portal, you know, conversation that we had with football. Like it takes a long time and it takes a lot of time for guys to really get develop that chemistry and to feel comfortable playing with, you know, people that they haven't played with before. Um, and there was a lot of turnover going into this season for the men's basketball team. So there's so much time for them to figure things out, you know, not really worried at all. Um, I think this is an important time for sure, but I'm less worried now than I was a year ago. And I think, you know, if my opinion means anything to people that should count for something. And there was another thing with the Kennesaw game where they had just lost to FIU on the road. Um, and I think they gave up something like 90 something like they had a whole deal after their players and their coach mentioned it in the post game about how like it was a big emphasis out of that game. Well, here you are. I can't imagine it's going to be much of a different message for Georgia State after the loss to Kennesaw. Uh, that defense is going to have to be better. And so now you have a chance this Saturday against Mercer 
to kind of put that into effect and flip it. And instead of being the team that is getting the response game foisted upon you, do that to Mercer. And, uh, you know, looking at their numbers a little bit, giving up a hair over 38% on three pointers against division one competition this year, which is bottom 20, 25 ish in division one, certainly a chance for a good shooting day. If those numbers tell you anything, uh, and they are also a team that fouls a fair amount, which that wasn't really the problem against Kennesaw, or, and it was not against Middle Georgia State. Uh, they only really started fouling when they, they were trying to play the the, foul, the free throw game late trailing. So a week where that was a better thing and maybe a game where you can take advantage. Because you look at it, if Georgia State can get to the line, that's the other part of the offensive thing. Like, Across the board, everyone has been exceptional from the free throw line. Even the bigs are putting up respectable numbers. I think I mentioned last week that like Jaden Turner is in the high 60s. And if that's your worst shooter from the line, you're doing a pretty good job. Got to get to the line against this team. Got to make some threes feel better. And I do think it'll take like a offensive performance where it all clicks to make people feel like, yes, everything is trending, at least in an okay direction. Um, You might have a chance to do that on Saturday. All right, and that is all we have time for this week. But, of course, before we get you out of here, we'll talk about everything happening on the Georgia State sports calendar, and it is a little bit of a light week here as we uh, start the meat of the December calendar. On Friday at 10 a.m., women's track and field heads up to Clemson, South Carolina for the Clemson opener. And then Saturday, as we previously mentioned, men's basketball heads down to Macon to face Mercer at 2 p.m., that game will be on ESPN Plus, and you can listen to Dave Cohen on the call on WGTJFM 97.5. Then on Sunday, women's basketball makes the short trip up to North Avenue to face Georgia Tech. That game will be at 2 p.m., and you can watch that one on ACC Network X. But that's everything happening in Georgia State Athletics this week. Uh, keep it tuned for Brady's coverage of the Saturday game at Mercer. And we will see you in the next episode of the Thursday Night Podcast next week, which will be episode 200. So that'll be a fun milestone. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate you guys. Have a good week and go Panthers.